Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by this message from the Nichols Road Campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. Thank you, church. Good to see you all. It's a joy to preach to you this morning, share the word with you, and I am going to use the kids' lovely memory verses from the Book of Romans as a springboard and preach to you from the book of Romans this morning. And so I'm going to give you an overview of the whole book. And we're going to expound on its major themes, major themes like salvation, the gospel, righteousness, and justification. And my goal is to better equip you to be familiar with this book so you can go back to it again and again in your life with God as you continue to grow and that the Holy Spirit will reveal what he wants you to learn today from his word. And throughout the message, I'll ask a few application questions to help us apply the content that was written so long ago to right now in our lives today. So we're going to start with Romans 1, 16 through 17, because these two verses actually sum up the book of Romans. Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So first, some background on the book of Romans. It was written by the Apostle Paul in AD 57, And it's one of the longest and most significant things ever written by Paul. It profoundly states the substance of the gospel as well as the gospel's significance for the present and the future. Paul was originally known as Saul of Tarsus. He was a Jewish rabbi among the Pharisees, and he was passionate and devoted to the Torah and the traditions of Israel And he saw Jesus's followers and Jesus as a threat. But he had this radical encounter with Jesus who commissioned him as an apostle. So Paul is sent as an official representative of God to the Gentiles. So he started going by his Roman name, Paul, and he traveled all over ancient Rome telling people about the risen King Jesus. And then he formed these followers into these new Jesus communities, churches, and he would often write them letters to teach them something or to answer their questions or to address issues that they were having. And so the book of Romans is one of these letters. Paul writes this letter to the Roman church later in his career, likely he was on his third missionary journey. And it's written to the church of Rome. We know from the book of Acts that this church had existed for a while, and the original recipients of the letter were predominantly Gentiles. There were some Jews in the congregation, but what happened was the emperor Claudius had kicked all the Jews out of Rome, and then when they were able to return, the Jesus following Jews came back to find a church that had become very non-Jewish in practice. And so this created tension and there was division 
in this Roman church. So people disagreed about how to follow Jesus. They were debating if non-Jewish Christians should, should celebrate the Sabbath or eat kosher or be circumcised. So Paul writes this letter to accomplish a couple of things. First, he wants the church to become unified. <clears throat> so unity is a big motivation of writing this. And also, he, want, he wrote to prepare the way for his intended visit to see them in the future. He longs to visit them, but at the moment, this letter was going to do the trick because he was on his way to deliver an offering that had been collected from all the mission churches for the poor Christians in Jerusalem, and he wanted to deliver that gift himself. So these are the circumstances that motivated Paul to write out his fullest explanation of the gospel, announcing the good news about Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and kingdom. And it's one of my favorite books of the Bible, and so I seized the opportunity to preach from it when the kids were doing their songs. This is my chance. <laughs> and so I hope you are just... Um, so moved to continue studying it on your own because there's so much there, so much richness, more than I'm going to be able to touch on today. But let us dive in. So this letter is one long flowing exploration of the gospel. Paul begins by introducing himself as an apostle of God to preach the good news about Jesus. And the good news that Paul is proclaiming is that it reveals God's power to save people and it reveals God's righteousness. So righteousness is a rich word that actually describes the character of God, meaning that God will always act with justice. He'll always do what's good and right. And also that he is faithful to fulfill his promises. And so Paul explains through the story of Jesus how God has done both of these things, that he's acted with justice and been faithful to his promises. In chapter 1, he retells Genesis 3 through 11 about how all the nations have become trapped in sin and selfishness, that the human heart is broken, turning away from God to embrace idolatry. And so what's left is a people who stand guilty before a just and righteous God. Verse 25 says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. And so idolatry is finding ultimate significance in created things and then giving ultimate allegiance to these things that are not God. This is idolatry, finding ultimate significance in created things, giving ultimate allegiance to these things that are not God. And what is the result of idolatry? It results in destructive behavior, and as a whole, breakdown of humanity and its, uh, its ultimate disdain toward God. And so this is what Paul uh, brings out in chapter 1, the state of everyone. So let's ask ourselves today, 
Is there any idolatry in my life? So Paul finds all humanity, both Gentiles and Israelites alike, hopelessly trapped and guilty before God. But then there's chapter three. That's not the final word. God shares his response, which is the good news about Jesus. Instead of holding humanity guilty, Jesus came as Israel, the Messiah, to die on behalf of all people as sacrifice for sins. As our representative, Jesus took into himself all of the just consequences of pain, sin, death that we caused in the world, and he overcame it by his resurrection from the dead. And so it's this new resurrection life that he makes available to others. So we see that it's God's righteous character that moved him to rescue the world through Jesus' death and resurrection. I love stating it this way. Jesus became what we are so we might become what he is. And Paul says that this is how God justifies those whose trust and faith are in the Lord. Romans 3, 23 and 24 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So justification here is another rich word to talk about for a moment here. It literally means to declare righteous. So again, it's tied to the righteous character of God, to declare righteous. So because of what Jesus did on our behalf, we are justified before God. We are given a new status. Instead of finding us guilty, God declares that a person is forgiven and in right relationship with him. We, through justification, we have a new family. The person who trusts in Jesus is then among God's covenant people. And we're given a new future which begins a journey of life transformation by God's grace, being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So all of these things about justification are God's gift to those who through faith are in Christ. Ask yourself, how does it feel to have a new status, a new family, and a new future? Then in chapter 4, Paul goes back to the story of Abraham from Genesis 15 to explain who can be part of God's covenant family. Verse 1 says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay, so what, what's all this talking about? So before the law was given to Israel, Abraham was justified or declared righteous before God. How 
Was that possible? Well, to back up, Abraham, God had promised Abraham that he would become a father of a large family that would receive God's blessing and in turn be a blessing to all nations. But he and his wife, Sarah, were really old and they had never been able to have children. But in spite of their physical circumstances, Abraham had profound faith and trust in God's promise. So God declared him to be righteous because of his faith. Paul says that now Abraham has become the father of God's new covenant family that's spreading all over the world. It's made up of Jews and Gentiles, so many cultures and races. But what links them is that they all have that same kind of faith and trust in God. Then in chapter 5, Paul goes back to Adam at the beginning of the Bible and says that Adam, like all humanity after him, chose sin and selfishness, being slaves to sin's influence, which results in death. So picture Adam like at the front of a line, and all humanity following after him is on that track, on that path. But then Paul contrasts. Adam with Jesus. He says that Jesus is the new Adam, a human who lived in faithful obedience to God, especially shown through his ultimate act of sacrificial love. Romans 5.17 says, for if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ? So now Jesus stands at the forefront of a new people that are being transformed by his gift. The gift is the opportunity to be justified before God. In chapter 6, Paul reminds Christians in Rome that choosing to follow Jesus means leaving old Adam-like lifestyles and entering into the new Jesus-like life. He says that their water baptism was a sacred symbol of that transition. Their old humanity died with Jesus, and their new humanity was raised with him from the dead. So when a person trusts in Jesus, their life becomes joined with him, What's true of him is now true of them, and they're set free from the tyranny of sin. Verses 20 through 22 of 6 says, When you were slave to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness And the result is eternal life. So our identity has been liberated to be like Jesus, making it possible for us to truly love God and love our neighbor. It's impossible to do so without it. Ask yourself, how has God transformed me to be like Jesus?
in chapter 7, Paul poses the question, well, what was the point of giving Israel the law if creating this new humanity, with Jesus at the front of the line here, if that was always the purpose, why did you go to the trouble of giving Israel the law? So Paul explains that the commands of the Torah were good because they showed God's will for how Israel was to live. But if you read the storyline, Israel broke all of those commands. So the more laws they received, the more they repeated the sin of Adam and rebelled. So Paul says God's goal in that was to make it crystal clear that evil took control of the human heart and that the Torah, as good as it is, couldn't do anything about it. Verses 5 and 6 of 7 say, For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Chapter 8 explains that the law was powerless to set us free, but Jesus and the Holy Spirit have got that covered. And the whole chapter is amazing as it expounds on what life looks like being set free unto righteousness. In chapter 9, Paul reminds them that simply being an Israelite, a physical descendant of Abraham, doesn't automatically make them a faithful member of the covenant family. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Is it not the natural children who are God's children? It is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. So God we see God has always selected a portion from Abraham's family to carry on the line of promise, which is carried on by all who follow Jesus. Ask yourself this morning, have I made my own commitment to Christ or am I relying on someone else's relationship with God to save me? In chapter 10, Paul explains why many Israelites reject Jesus. It's because they were basing their covenant relationship with God on their performance of the commands of the Torah. And so sadly, they don't recognize what God has done through Jesus to create a new covenant family based on faith. And Paul is is grieved by this. He, he shares that in the first three verses of 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. 
righteousness for everyone who believes. And that is the, the word of faith that we're proclaiming that their song was that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In chapter 11, Paul asks, well, then what's Israel's future? Has God written off his people? No, Paul says. There are lots of Jewish people like Paul who recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, but there also are a lot who don't. But God is able to use their rejection for his own purposes. It caused the gospel to spread even quicker and farther, making the family of Abraham even larger. Then in this chapter, Paul compares God's covenant family to a big olive tree where the Israelites who have rejected Jesus are like branches that have been broken off. And the Gentiles who put their faith in Jesus are like wild branches that have been grafted in to the family tree. However, Paul says that eventually all Israel will be saved. And Paul trusts that this promise of God will come to pass. All right, so because faith-filled Jews and Gentiles together now make up Abraham's family, Paul comes to the conclusion that the only reasonable response is for these Jews and non-Jewish Christians to be unified as the church. In chapters 12 and 13, Paul shows that this unity will come from a commitment to love and forgive each other. Love will look like everybody using their diverse gifts and talents to serve one another in the church, he says. So let's ask ourselves, how am I or how can I use my gifts and talents to serve the church? Love will also mean being humble and quick to forgive. When these different ethnic groups and cultures came together in Jesus in this church in Rome, conflict is inevitable in that situation. It can only be overcome through the hard work of forgiveness and reconciliation. Paul says that this is how they will show the greatest of Christian virtues, which is love. Let's read about love in chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Romans 12. Starting in verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. 
Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Hang out with the unpopular people. Don't be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And there's so much more about what it is to live a life of love that you guys will have to read on your own. But this is the loving way that Paul is instructing them to live. So let's ask ourselves, is conflict inevitable in all churches? How does Romans teach us to overcome conflicts within church? You guys want to answer out loud? You answered the first one out loud. How does Romans teach us to overcome conflicts within church? I'm hearing forgiveness, love others above yourselves, humility. Yeah, if we're conceited, that is not going to help anything. Compassionate, yeah. Having grace for where people are coming from. I mean, the Gentiles and the Jew, they would be so different. They would just have to have so much grace for each other's differing starting points, wouldn't they? Some of us have different starting points too. Okay, in chapters 14 and 15, Paul focuses on the specific issues that are creating divisions in the Roman church. So Paul says, this is what he tells them, that Jewish food laws and the Sabbath are practices that don't define who is in or who is out of Jesus' family. So if people differ over these culturally important but non-essential issues, they need to learn how to respect each other's differences and not judge one another. He says, don't destroy the work of God for the sake of disputable matters. Instead, make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual, mutual edification. In this way, love will heal and unify this church, allowing them to move forward in their personal spiritual growth in God, in ministry toward others, and in spreading the gospel, because they won't be stuck in the muck of disagreement on non-essentials. Ask yourself this morning, have I ever judged someone over a non-essential issue?
You guys are awesome. Maybe instead of ask yourself, ask your neighbor, have I ever just... <laughs> What, now ask yourself, what ought I focus on instead? So unity is the key. In verse 5 of 15, Paul writes, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement, aren't you glad he gives us endurance and encouragement? Oh, I need both of those on a daily basis. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mind, you may glorify God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, that brings us to the last chapter of chapter 16. Paul closes the letter by commending Phoebe, she is a key leader in the church. She had the honor of carrying this letter and perhaps even reading it aloud to the Roman churches for the first time. Then Paul greets lots of wonderful people that he hasn't seen in a long time. And finally, he concludes the letter by giving praise to God. So, in review... Paul surveyed the condition of all mankind, Jews and Gentiles alike, and found them all to be sinners in need of rescue. That rescue is salvation by God through Jesus' redemptive work on the cross. But salvation must be received by faith, as we see in the example of Abraham. Salvation is just the beginning of life in the kingdom. Paul shows how the believer is freed from sin by being united with Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. Then Paul explains Israel's place in God's overall redemption plan and how the Gentiles are grafted into the new covenant family. Then he closes by encouraging the readers to practically work out their faith both in the church and in the world. Amen. All right. Do you know more about Romans than you did before? Okay. Is your interest peaked to study it more on your own? Okay. <laughs> that was awesome. Okay. Another question to ask yourself, what did I learn from this book about how to follow Christ? How can I start to implement that this week? And who could I share this message with? You know what? Maybe these would be great questions to discuss with your friends or your family or your roommates or in your community groups this week. Okay, so in closing, I would like to invite us all to stand and pray together a prayer. Now, let me tell you what this prayer is. 
It's a prayer of thankfulness, which we've been praying prayers of thankfulness all morning. How cool is that? It's a prayer of thankfulness, and it's a prayer of professing faith in God. So I invite everyone to pray along, whether this will be your first time confessing faith in God or whether you've been in his family for a lifetime or if you find yourself anywhere in between. I invite you to pray this in unison. Here we go. Dear God, thank you for your righteous character that moved you to rescue the world through Jesus' death and resurrection. Thank you for providing payment for sin. I rejoice that I am justified before you because of your gift. I accept your invitation to follow you and live under your loving rule. I declare that you are Lord, and I believe in my heart that you raised Jesus from the dead. I place my faith in you. I believe you are who you say you are and that I am who you say I am. I receive your love for me, and I love you back. Thank you for giving me a place in your family. Amen.